Right, let's pray and ask God to bless us as we consider his word. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the great privilege and honour it is to, uh, Lord, um, preach your word and to stand up before your people to proclaim your uh, eternal truths. And Father, we would pray that even uh, this morning as we consider your word that you would impress upon us again Lord, just the absolute glory of your person, your majesty, your power, your all-sufficiency, that we might see, Father, that there is only one God, there is only one being, Lord, that we should give, uh, that our affections should be directed towards. And, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would uh, capture our uh, thoughts, capture our uh, imagination and our hearts, Lord, that we would be, uh, Lord, um, servants of you and nothing else. I uh, pray that you would just empower me now to preach your word. Give me, uh, Father, your uh, spirit's enabling. And we pray that everything that is said and done would bring honor and glory to thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been looking, of course, uh, uh, the all-sufficient God as the theme of the conference. And uh, as I've been preaching through uh, Exodus and looking at this theme in Exodus, we have already seen that God's personal name Jehovah or Yahweh reveals that he is both self-existent and self-sufficient. His personal name is the revelation of his character and his nature. He is the first cause from which everything else has originated. The God who needs nothing outside of himself for his existence. And because he doesn't need anything and yet can provide everything and indeed has provided everything, then it must also mean that God is sufficient for all of our needs. Every need that you have in one way or another can be met by God. And this was the meaning, as we saw, of God's self-revelation to Moses. This was the God that Moses was to go and reintroduce to the nation of Israel. But if you lived in Moses' day, and even today in some places around the world, the people that surrounded you would have told you that their gods were also sufficient to meet their needs. For instance, if you lived in Egypt, the Egyptians would have told you that they had multiplied gods who took care of every need that they had. They had the sun god Amun-Ra who provided warmth, light and life. They had the various gods of the Nile, gods like Kunum who guarded the river's source and Happy, the god of the annual flooding of the Nile, which allowed, of course, all of their crops to grow. There was the great god Osiris who ruled the underworld and who was also the god of resurrection and fertility. Then there was the cat goddess Basset, who was there to protect children and pregnant women. They had Horus, the god of war, who would ensure the Egyptians' success in their battles against their enemies. In fact, Egypt had almost 1,500 gods and goddesses to take care of every conceivable aspect of life. Their gods were said to influence every area of existence, life, death, procreation, government, war, agriculture, Weather, floods, rain, personal fortune, family life, and so on and so on. Their gods had covered every base. 
So if the God of the Israelites was sufficient for all their needs and the gods of the Egyptians are sufficient for every necessity, then isn't this just a case of rival gods from different nations providing for the needs of their worshippers? Isn't this just the case of God meeting your need and, 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 uh, and my God's meeting my needs? Is this a case, isn't this just a case of an argument between two sides that ultimately goes back and forth without ever being able to be resolved like two children in a schoolyard arguing over whose dad was the best? And if you were to ask an Egyptian whose deities were better, they would say theirs were. If you were to ask the the Israelites uh, who knew Jehovah who was better, they would say that Jehovah was. And so is this just a situation where you stick with what's familiar with you and I'll stick with what is familiar with me? Is there no way to show whose God or whose gods are superior? Well, what about a contest? What about a battle? What about, what about a fight to the end? Surely that will reveal whose God was greater and whose God was truly sufficient for every need. And this is exactly what we see taking place in the book of Exodus. Jehovah, the almighty God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, was going to demonstrate that he alone is God. That there really is no other. And in bringing his people out of Egypt, he will show the world that he is the self-existent God who has power over all things, including over all the so-called gods of the Egyptians. In fact, this was his stated purpose. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, he revealed to Moses that he would demonstrate to the Egyptians his great power through his wonders. In chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. And I am sure, this is God speaking, that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And these verses don't say that he is explicitly going to show himself more powerful than the gods of Egypt. But it is an indication of the power that he possesses, his wonders. And of course, Moses doesn't know what they will be just yet. But his wonders will force Pharaoh's hand. But God does later explicitly tell the nation that the purpose of the wonders that he was performing was to display his superiority over the gods of Egypt. We read this verse last uh, yesterday morning in chapter 12 and verse 12. Where God is explicitly told the nation there what he was going to do, what, what these signs and wonders were all about. At the end of verse 12, he says, Against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. According to Exodus 9.14, the Lord God Jehovah was going to demonstrate his uniqueness over the other gods by executing these signs and wonders against them. Look there in chapter 9, verses 14, uh, verse, verse 14. 
For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. None like me. And so through the various plagues that he would inflict, Jehovah was going to show himself all-powerful and all-sufficient over all the spurious gods, all the false gods of the Egyptians. So this message, I want us to examine what is commonly called the plagues of Egypt or the ten plagues. To see briefly, of course, we can't look at each of these uh, in depth, but to see briefly briefly how Jehovah's all-sufficiency is displayed over the false gods of the Egyptians. And I want to start first with a defence of the plagues. A defence of the plagues. Before we begin, we need to talk about this because there are, of course, when you read the literature, there's lots of people who deny that these are miraculous events. Many so-called Bible scholars and secular critics who seek to explain away the, the events here in, in the, the, the plagues as purely natural events that were commonplace in Egypt. And they relegate them to simple natural disasters that were in, more intense than normal, but still not miraculous. Take, for instance, the work of the unbelieving scholar by the name of Greta Hort, whose ideas are widely quoted in Bible reference books and encyclopedias. According to Hort, the first plague of blood was supposedly a massive amount of red algae, plus huge quantities of red earth washed into the Nile by the heavy rains up there in the Ethiopian highlands. This algal bloom allegedly deoxygenated the water, killed the fish and, and uh, somehow gave rise to anthrax bacteria. Uh, the frogs got sick, left the river and died. That's the second plague. The third plague was mosquitoes that bred in the floodwaters of the, Egyptian, uh, of the Nile. And the fourth was the, the biting fly breeding in the decaying plants left by the receding Nile flood. The fifth plague of disease on the cattle was anthrax spread by the dead frogs. The sixth plague, or the boils on animals and people, was supposedly skin anthrax transmitted by the biting flies. Then the seventh plague of hail and thunder was a chance local event, which also promoted the arrival of the locusts, which were the eighth plague. The ninth plague of darkness was allegedly caused by a great desert sandstorm that blotted out the sun by throwing up into the air a blanket of fine red dust from the first plague left behind by the, the, the receding flood water. And finally, according to Hort, the tenth plague was not the death of the firstborn, but the destruction of the last remains of the first fruits of the harvest due to what she called a corruption of the Bible text. So astounding, isn't it? Look how smart these scholars are. How foolish for anyone to think that the Bible can be taken at face value. But beloved, according to these scholars, there's nothing supernatural about these plagues. It's all explained away by natural means. But it's amazing how many facts she just got plainly wrong. And this is really the best that unbelieving scholarship can give us factual errors and distortion. This is the very best that they can give us. For instance, the Nile uh, mud is brown, not red. 
Anthrax occurs in soil, not in water, and doesn't affect fish or frogs. And if the death of the firstborn is really a mistranslation of one Hebrew word, as she supposes, then how does that account for uh, two and a half chapters in this text describing in great detail the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians and the saving of the firstborn of the Israelites? This is utter foolishness. And it shows the blindness, really, of the unregenerate mind. What we see in the Exodus account of the ten plagues is God working through natural means in a supernatural way, using natural phenomenon that he has brought to bear upon this nation. These are miracles. These are miraculous events. And first, and the most obvious evidence that they are miracles is the plain statement of the Bible itself. In chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, it specifically tells us that God was going to stretch out his hand upon the Egyptians and uh, smite them uh, with these signs and wonders. Go back to chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. The language here is clear and plain. God would execute these miraculous judgments. But secondly, if the plagues were just non-miraculous disasters, then how could Moses predict for Pharaoh not just their arrival, but even their departure? He did that a number of times throughout the plagues, and I won't give you the references. They're they're there uh, between chapter 8 and chapter 10. Thirdly, the plagues were discriminatory in, in that, except for the first three, Uh, they only occurred uh, in the lands where the Egyptians were living. They did not occur in the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived. And there's explicit uh, statements to that in the scriptures that, uh, that the Israelites didn't suffer under these particular plagues. God spared just a small area of the land where Israel lived from the last seven plagues, something which would have been impossible if these were just natural phenomenon and fourth we see a gradual increase in the severity and of the nature of the plagues including in the uh, concluding rather in the death of the firstborn so this is an indication that they are part of god's judgment upon the egyptians and not just natural disasters of course we could we could spend a lot of time on this and look at all of these things but i just want to make that point uh to to for us to realize that and then of course we all as believers he would I'm preaching to the choir, of course, but we would all, all understand that. But again, there are a lot of, lot of so-called Christians that try to relegate that. Even some conservative Christians don't take this account on face value. Don't take the account of, for instance, Gordon Wenham in his commentary talks about the Exodus and that there was really only about 72,000 people that left uh, you know, Egypt when... Uh, you know, and all the figures that the Bible gives are basically wrong. So there are even some conservative, conservative scholars that might disagree. But beloved, I think we all understand that we can take God's word on face value. 
What it says is what it means. So we've seen the defense of the plagues. Let's turn now to the description of the plagues. And so by sending these plagues on Egypt, Jehovah was executing judgment on their gods. Chapter 12, verse 12, we read that. Piece by piece, God would dismantle the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods. One writer states, each plague of the Exodus stands alone as a specific judgment on a particular Egyptian god. While viewed collectively, the plagues of Egypt illustrate God's supremacy over and his attitude toward the corporate sphere of the gods of mythology. So while Jehovah shows himself superior superior over the individual gods by humiliating one after another, he shows also that he is superior over the entire mythological structure or system of the Egyptian of, of Egyptian paganism. Jehovah proves that these gods are nothing more than myths and falsehoods and that he alone, as we read in chapter 7 verse 5, that he is the Lord, that he is the true and living God. And he does that through these plagues. The word plague simply means, we think of plague sometimes as a disease, but here in the Hebrew the word just means a strike or a blow. This is just God smiting the nation of Egypt. And so the first plague in chapter 7 is the plague directed against the Nile River. Look there in chapter 7 verse 19. And again, we're just going to pick selected verses from these chapters. The Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams and their rivers and upon their ponds and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Now the Nile River, with all of its tributaries, all of its canals and cisterns and reservoirs, was turned to blood. Some conservative Bible scholars do not believe that it was literal blood, but something that was blood-like. Of course, sometimes in the Bible we, we, we see that you know, uh, reference, like in the book of Revelation, the moon turned as blood, in a metaphorical language. And so some believe it's a blood-like substance. Others hold to the fact, even conservative scholars hold to the fact that this was that red algae that we mentioned before. But nevertheless, it was just a normal flooded cycle of the river. Now, I honestly don't know what it was. But I do, I do not believe that it was just a natural cycle of the, of the, the flooding river. And I say that all, all, uh, because all of the various storage vessels throughout Egypt ended up containing the blood. We read that at the end of verse 19. Even the water that they'd drawn from the river and put in wooden vessels and stone vessels ended up being this blood-like substance. So this is obviously a miraculous event, not just red algae or red sediment. Previously stored water would not turn to blood or to this turn, turn red if it was just the natural cycle of the, of the river flooding. Now, if it wasn't actual blood, then it was something that looked like blood and probably tasted like blood. But the result of the river turning into blood is seen here in verse 21. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land 
of Egypt. So dependent was Egypt upon the life-sustaining flows of the Nile River that they deified it. They made the river a god. They worshipped the river as their source of life. So the plague was actually an attack on the gods of Egypt associated with the river Nile. This plague confronted the numerous river gods. We've mentioned before Khnum, the the creator god. He's the, the guardian of the Nile's source. Then there's the god Happy, the spirit of the Nile, the god of fertility. He was the one who regulated the flood, the floods of the Nile. Then there's Osiris, the god of the underworld. They considered that the Nile to be his bloodstream. Now think about that. They turned, God turned what was considered this god's bloodstream into blood. And people say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. He's basically saying, you think that this is uh, the bloodstream of your God? Well, let me turn it into blood and see whether you still want to worship this so-called God. It was an attack on the gods Hathor and Neith as well, who were supposed to be the protectors of the fish in the river. In fact, the fish were meant to be their offspring. And so by turning the Nile into blood and killing the, the fish, Moses was not only shaming all the Egyptian gods or objects of worship, but also showing that sustenance comes only from the hand of Jehovah, that he alone is sufficient. We turn to the second plague that involved that inundation of frogs in chapter 8 and verses 3 to 5. The river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up, and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. The Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. Frogs were a sacred animal to the Egyptians, sacred to them. And it was actually an offense to kill a frog because they were considered gods. Normally frogs stayed in the river along the the, the banks, but there would be so many of them that they would infiltrate right into the houses of the Egyptians right up into their personal space, as we read here, into their beds, into their ovens, into their kneading troughs. Ladies, can you imagine you're going to make some bread and it's full of frogs? Can you imagine going to bed and and, and turning back the sheet and it's full of frogs? There's only one thing I think of worse than than frogs in the bed and that's snakes. I remember we uh, we went on a youth uh, trip up... um, up into Queensland, I think was El Shaddai Ranch was that at um, Gladstone, and uh, <laughs> the one night I was the last to go to the bed. They said turn turn all the lights off, close all the doors, and I turned the lights off and I was closing the last door, the door to the shower block, and up on the door was a green tree frog, and as I closed the door, I obviously pinched him in the door jam, and he jumped off and jumped on my forehead. <laughs> this slimy green tree frog. And I'm running around screaming at the top of my voice with this frog on my head. That's just one frog. Imagine, imagine your house was full of frogs and they're falling from the ceiling and they're jumping across your house, from the the walls and into everything. Oh, what a disaster that would have been. 
This plague was an attack on the Egyptian goddess Hecate, who was usually depicted as a woman with a frog's head. She was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of fertility of crops, but also of people as well, childbirth. It was also an attack upon Isis, not the Isis in Iraq and Syria, but the goddess Isis, the, the goddess of the Nile, another fertility goddess. Both, she was both the sister and the wife of Osiris. These gods were often worshipped through perverted practices like the, 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 the um, temple prostitutes. You see that in, in the land of Canaan. And so this was an attack on the very gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And when Pharaoh thought he had enough, he entreated Moses uh, to go to the Lord and to take those frogs away. Look there in verses 13 and 14. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps. And the land stank. Dead, rotting frogs piled up into great heaps. These goddesses were powerless to prevent these symbols of life becoming rotting piles of death. Think about what was taking place. These, this frog goddess had multiplied her children to such an extent that now they were despised and literally stepped upon by the very people that used to worship them. Do you see how God was embarrassing these gods and goddesses of Egypt? Interestingly, though, the Egyptian magicians imitated the plague of blood and frogs with their enchantments. We see that in chapter 7, verse 22, and chapter 8, verse 7. But these could have been sleight-of-hand simulations, or they could have been demonic miracles. These miracles are evidence of supernatural power, not just of, of God's power. But notice that God allowed these magicians to add to these two plagues, but they could not take it away. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. He's the only one that can reverse what he has brought into being. The third plague involved the outpouring of lice, which some suggest were insects like gnats or mosquitoes. But notice where the lice came from in chapter 8, verse 17. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast, all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. The lice literally formed from the dust of the earth. This was a, an obvious attack on all the gods of the earth, in, including the god Geb, who was considered the protector of the soil, the one who would give you know, the soil its nutrients and, and, and allow crops to grow and, and uh, allow them to have their harvests. He kept the, the soil fertile. So the dust to become lice would have been a total humiliation on this God's so-called supernatural power. It would be saying, well, you can't control your own turf. You, you can't control the, the very ground that you're meant to be the God of. Lice would also have a, an especially devastating effect on the priesthood of the Egyptians. As part of their rituals, the priests would daily bathe and shave their bodies of all of their hair. They believed that any uncleanness would defile them and would keep them from performing their temple duties. And, and uh, thus their gods would be displeased. But now they're covered with lice, which would have prevented them from performing their religious duties. And that would evoke the wrath of the gods. 
And we notice that it was after this miracle that the Egyptian magicians, part of the priesthood, part of the very ones who were being attacked here, finally acknowledged that this was the work of God. Look there in verses 18 and 19. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as, he, as the Lord had said. Now God had said he's going to work his, his mighty wonders. He was going to use his great hand. But notice here, it's not his hand, it's just his finger. This was not hard for God to do this. This was not a difficult thing for God to bring forth lice out of the dirt. And they recognized this. That their, that their gods were, were not superior. That, the, that Jehovah, the, the God of the Israelites, was truly superior in this plague. Let's go to the fourth plague. This involved the great swarms of flies. Chapter 8. Let's read verse 21 and 24. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into thy houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground whereon they are. And I will... Uh, so verse 24. And the Lord did so... And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. Let me ask the question, what do flies like? They like filth, don't they? They like things like dung or manure. They like rotting flesh. You go out and see a dead animal and it's covered in flies. And what happened in the other plagues? Well, the fish died. The frogs died. They were all piled up in great heaps. And God sent billions upon billions of flies to feast upon these rotting carcasses of the frogs and fish. They caused havoc among the Egyptians. It says the land was corrupted by reason of the swarms. And we know here in Australia just how pesky flies can be. You know, we, we, we just have a few around and we're, we're forever going like that and getting frustrated like, you know, that's why we've d developed those hats with those corks, you know, because those flies are annoying. But imagine having billions upon, uh, of them around you and in your house and, I mean, just covering all your food and it would be nauseating. It would be completely just debilitating. But notice that, the, that also that these, this term swarms of flies, that the word, the word flies is in italics, so that God sent swarms. And so this probably is speaking here of flying insects. Of, and scholars believe the term indicates a mixture of unpleasant and offensive flying creatures. Not just flies, but all sorts of flying insects, all, all sorts of swarming things, maybe even bees. And, and uh, in, in Egypt in particular, they have a fly called the dog fly that gives a very nasty bite. If you go down to the beach down in Victoria, anyway, I'm not sure up here, you get those marsh, marsh flies and they bite, they're really painful bite. You get them, insects, uh, they, probably mosquitoes possibly here. But this was again an attack on the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians' god Kefri, the scarab beetle, 
the dung beetle. That was a symbol of the, of the sun god Ra. And a, a plague of flies shows the failure of the dung beetle god to do his job of, of clearing the land and protecting the land uh, so that these flies could not breed. And this god had totally failed to keep his affairs in order. Swarms raging out of control demonstrated that Jehovah was the one who was in control of the earth and the skies. And this plague also attacked the, another god, the god Vachet, which was the Egyptian equivalent of the Canaanite god Belzebub. We know him as what? The lord of the flies. That's right. And these gods were powerless to reign in the creatures that were supposedly under their control. And the Egyptians depended upon these gods to protect them, but they couldn't. And in every instance, Jehovah warned Pharaoh uh, what he was about to do. So there is no mistaking who is superior in this battle of the gods. He is proving that he alone is all powerful and all sufficient. The fifth plague was an attack upon the livestock in chapter nine, verse three. Chapter nine, verse three. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous murrain. The word murrain means pestilence. No one really knows what type of disease this was. Some suggestions are anthrax. Some say it was something like foot and mouth. And I guess if you put your foot in your mouth, you probably deserve to get some sort of disease, don't you? But what it was, we just don't know. But it was a plague on the livestock. Notice there, on horses, on asses, on camels, on oxen and sheep. And these animals provided the food. They provided the milk and clothing and transportation for, uh, for the nation. And so this was attack on the, on the gods of agriculture. This was a direct attack on, on one of their main gods, the god Apis. He was a bull, a bull that was supposedly conceived by a, a virgin cow and that was venerated by the, by the Egyptians and was given everything it wanted. Often these, these, these bulls would live to 25 plus years. And when this bull died, they would not just you know, bury it or whatever. They would actually mummify it. And there's a whole valley they found some time ago, a valley full of massive stone sarcophagus, massive stone coffins, too big just for a, a human. And when they opened them up, they were full of these bulls, these apis bulls, these gods that they worshipped. And here God was attacking these very gods. There's the god Menevis as well, another bull, uh, a, a bull god, a symbol of fertility. There's Hathor, the cow-like mother goddess, pictured as a woman with a, with a head uh, and horns of a cow. The goddess Isis as well, the queen of the gods, she wore a cow horns on her head. And so this pestilence, murrain proved that, that they were all impostors, fake gods with no power whatsoever. They could not even keep their own creatures alive. But Jehovah could keep the cattle of his people alive and well. Chapter 9, verse 6. The Lord did that thing on the morrow and all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Well, what power, what sovereignty here God is showing, demonstrating his sovereignty that he can, he can touch the Egyptians, but he can protect and save those of his own people. The sixth plague brought boils upon the people and animals of Egypt. Chapter 
9 verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it became small dust in all the land of Egypt and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Again, we don't know what these boils were, but some suggest they were something like smallpox or something called Nile blister, which is similar to scarlet fever. But verses 9 and 10 indicate that, there was, that they were something like blisters or abscesses, little pustules. That, that would, uh, that's what the word blains here means. This attack showed the impotence of the gods of magic and healing in the, in the land of Egypt. Gods like Heike and, and Thoth, also called Imenhotep. They were powerless to protect even the magicians from these boils. These were the magicians who practiced the very medicine that the, these, these gods were, were to, to supply. And it demonstrated the supreme power of Jehovah. Look in verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. These healing gods could not even protect the ones who were their special servants. The seventh plague was a plague of hail and fire. Chapter 9, let's read verses 22 to 23. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt upon man, and upon beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And this plague had a devastating effect upon the economy of Egypt. Hail can cause huge crop destruction. A few years back, probably three or four years back, we had a massive hailstorm in Melbourne. Probably not as bad as what you get in Sydney. I know Sydney gets some bad ones too. But uh, where we meet for church, there's a massive oak tree. And uh, the, that, this was a Saturday that the, this hailstorm came down. And uh, on Sunday, there was probably a, 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 about a foot thick of leaf litter and, and branches all around that oak tree. That hail had just took off half the half the, the leaves and branches of, of that oak tree. Massive destruction. And I know farmers certainly don't like hail, especially when they're getting close to to cropping. But uh, all of the, the all of this destruction brought upon them. Look in verse twenty five. And the hail smote throughout all the, the land of Egypt that all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tr- tree of the field. But notice again that the hail didn't touch the land where the Hebrews lived. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. Again, it proved that God was sovereign over the elements and powerful enough to protect his people. Chapter 9 and verse 16, this is God speaking through Moses. And in very deed, for this cause, if I raise thee up, Raised up Pharaoh for to show in thee my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And God was demonstrating his tremendous power through Pharaoh and through the destruction of these gods and goddesses of Egypt. What a great display. What a great demonstration. 
But again, this was an attack on the multiplicity of sky gods, including the, the goddess Nut. The goddess is pictured as uh, being arched over the earth and her, one of her roles was to control the weather so that the uh, land could produce numerous crops. And again, what a failure. The eighth plague was that of locusts brought to Egypt by the east wind. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all, the, all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought, brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it, was, when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. So you can imagine this. Can you imagine the, the economy of Egypt being devastated by these, this hail, destroying all of their crops, killing, killing the, the animals that hadn't died from the, from the murane. And now another plague on top of this, destroying everything that the hail and the fire had left behind. And locusts are voracious eaters. They can eat their own body weight every day. And you know, there's not just one or two of them. They multiply into the billions. They said it was a time in Africa. There was they, they, I can't remember which which country it was. There was a, a small group of uh, a small you know uh, swarm of of locusts that within five years had 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 uh, built up into billions, and devastated multiple countries. That's what these 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 creatures can do. And again, this was an attack on the various sky deities, Shu, Tefnut and Nut. These were deities of the air, of moisture and sky and supposedly controlled the weather. And the loss of crops showed the impotence of the gods of vegetation and agriculture and the harvest. Different gods like Geb and Seth. The ninth plague was, the, of course, the plague of darkness. Chapter 10, verse 21 and 20 to 23. The Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also Go with you. So this was an attack on the supreme deity. Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, um, supreme deity of Egypt, the sun god. We know him as Ra or Amon Ra. Sometimes it's spelled R-E, the word Re. He was believed to bring light and heat to the earth. Other sky gods also were impotent. Were uh, Horus, Kefri, Mut, and Nut, and 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 these gods that were all associated with the sun and the sky. So with the last plague, Pharaoh was desperate. All of his gods and goddesses were obliterated by all the all-powerful God Jehovah. And in desperation, he called on Moses to go, ye serve the Lord. Only he wanted them to leave their flocks behind. Of course, this was unacceptable to Moses. The tenth plague is the final plague we looked at yesterday, the death of the firstborn. Chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is left, 
sorry, that is behind the mule, and all the firstborn of beasts. And they shall and there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was not like it, nor shall be like it any more. This was an attack on the divinity of Pharaoh himself, whom they considered the Egyptians believed was an incarnation of the sun god Ra and of God, the god Osiris, the giver of life. And so it was, it was Pharaoh's task to retain the favor of the gods and to uphold the laws of the, the goddess Mat, the goddess of order. And here Pharaoh just showed that he was impotent. He was powerless. He couldn't, he couldn't protect their land. He couldn't keep their gods, you know, on, 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 you know, um, you know favorable, keeping the gods, um, giving them what, what they were used to. And he was certainly here powerless to prevent the death of his first, firstborn son, his next in line divine ruler. And it was an incontrovertible proof that Jehovah alone is the absolute controller of life and death. There is no God like the God of Israel. He is sovereign and all-powerful. He shows how utterly unique he is. There is nothing that comes close to being like Jehovah. And even if you were to meld all of these gods together, all of the gods of the Egyptians together, they would just be a pale imitation of the true and living God. This is exactly what God was trying to display throughout these mighty acts. We read chapter 9, verse 14. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Unique. Unique in every sense. Isaiah, 60, uh, Isaiah 46 and verses 9 and 10. Again declares the, God's own exclusivity and uniqueness. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. and From ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. There is none, there is no God like him, unique in his attributes, unique in his power. Unique in his ability. Whatever he desires, whatever his pleasure is, he can do. Isaiah 42 and verse 8, where we were this morning. Where Pastor Jacob was preaching. Verse 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Remember, that's the name that he revealed himself to Moses as Jehovah, as Yahweh. And look, the rest of the verse says, And my glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. Here God was displaying not just to the Egyptians, not just to the Israelites, but to the entire world that there really is only one true and living God. There really is none other. A God who is self-existent and self-sufficient by his very nature is surely powerful enough to crush any false claimants to his glorious throne. Our God is a jealous God, the Bible says. And he will not let that glory go to another. And in, in the end, he will show himself to be all-powerful and all-sufficient. And so this is what the plagues were meant to do. 
This is what the plagues did. And this is certainly one of the, 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 the fact that God is all-powerful is one of the ramifications of God's, uh, of God's self-existence. If he is self-existent and was there and he's, he created everything, then that, that surely it must mean that he is also all-powerful, that he alone is omnipotent. Before creation, God was there and there, and there never was a time when he was not there. He, was, he is eternally existent. And that naturally means that he's also sovereign ruler over everything and being all powerful over everything and so this was also a demonstration to the nation of israel that their god was the only true living god because we read in books like in, in in joshua at the end of joshua that even the children of israel during this sojourn worshiped egyptian gods they needed to be reminded about the god of their ancestors of abraham isaac and jacob they needed to, to realize that there really is only one true and living God. God's power was meant to make an impression upon them so that they would look to him and not to the non-existent gods of this world. He wanted them to worship reality, not make-believe. The Egyptians were making make-believe, or worshiping, sorry, make-believe, uh, gods that, had, that they had invented themselves. And having been shown God's awesome power, how foolish it would then be for these Israelites to worship anything else. And yet what about us? We have all of this recorded for us so that we might learn the same truth that God intended for the nation of Israel. We need to learn not to put our trust in idols that cannot save, idols that cannot provide, idols that cannot respond. Our God is just as concerned that we live in realism, that we worship what is real as opposed to that which is false. Don't we live in a world where people make worship make-believe and make-believe and falsehoods? They think that if only they can have more money, more possessions, more women or more men, more prestige or whatever it is they're clamoring for, that they would be complete, that they would be satisfied. And so they, they, they chase after these gods, they pursue these idols. But in reality, it's all an illusion. It's all a falsehood. And even Christians can be caught up in that secular mindsets. Christians who live to please themselves, who live for the world's attainments, who live to gratify every fleshly pleasure, are just as deluded as the Egyptians who worshipped all of these, these false gods. Are you deluded? Are you deceived? thinking that you can serve Jehovah God and the gods of wealth, position, possessions. You are self-deceived if you think that your pursuit of worldly attainments will not be harmful to you. As God himself says that. Galatians 6 and verse 7 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
You can't sow to this life in the flesh and live for worldly things and think that it does not have an effect upon you, that it, that it will not come back to you in increased measure. That's what he's talking about here. That's the law of the harvest. He says here, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And how many times have we deluded ourselves? And I'll put my hand up as well. Have we deluded ourselves into thinking, yes, uh, I can indulge in this and it will, there will be no consequences. We are self-deceived. Worshipping these gods, chasing after these idols. And do you know what God has to do to believers who are self-deceived like this? Who have, who have idols in their hearts, even if those idols are themselves? And it may be that they, they've put themselves up on a pedestal and they're worshipping themselves by doing whatever they like. Do you know what the, what the Lord has to do? He has to demolish all of their false gods so that they learn to seek the only true God, just as he did here in Egypt. And he will demolish the false gods that you make for yourself so that you will see that he is all-sufficient, that he alone can meet your heart's deepest needs. And as with the Egyptians, that type of demolition can be very costly. And so the only right and safe thing to do is to turn to God and to seek him with your whole heart. And when you do, you will find that God is more than enough to sustain you. He is sufficient for your every need. And the Lord continues to battle with the false gods of this world to show to us that he is sufficient to show to his children that he is the only one that we should seek for. The Bible gives us the great promise that if we draw nigh to God, that he will draw nigh to us. But in order to do that, as James 4, 8 says, we must cleanse your hands, ye sinners. You need to purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Double-minded hearts. Chasing the world on the one hand on the, on the, on the, and, and on the other, thinking that we can still serve God and still worship God. Oh, God tells us to purify our hearts. We can't continue to seek the false gods of this world and save, uh, serve at the same time our all-sufficient God. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus' own words. We have a God who is superior. Superior over all the idols. All the false gods of this world. And he's proven himself. I mean, time and time again throughout the scriptures, he's proven himself. The the scriptures have been given for our learning, it says in in Romans 15 verse 4. So that we might learn the truths that he was trying to teach the people in Israel. Someone said, I think it was Pastor Jagel said, you know, we, we we ought to learn from the mistakes of others. Isn't that what this is all about? Yet so many times we have to make the same mistakes. 
But it doesn't have to be so. When we obey the leading of the Spirit and obey the teachings of God's Word. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your display of awesome power. How you humiliated the gods of Egypt, brought them low, destroyed them, Father, destroyed their reputations, showed, Father, that they were falsehoods and and make-believe. Father, we pray that you would do the same in our lives. Lord, if there's any gods, if there are any idols, Lord, in our lives that we are bowing down before, if there's anything we're serving above you, if there's any affections, Lord, that have robbed our, our affections for you, Lord, we pray that you would just demolish them as well. Bring to naught all of these false gods and that we might turn to the true and living God, the one that is all-sufficient and all-powerful. can meet every need. In Jesus' name we pray.